Welcome to the Damon Parker Podcast. On today's episode, you will hear part three of a series of teachings on how I came to an affirming view of same-sex relationships. In this lesson, we begin with Romans 1 and discuss what we can learn from the natural world, science, psychology, and even personal observation. As always, I hope you are moved, and thanks for listening. Tonight, I, I want to begin with a, with a brief review of what we have talked about so far uh, before we get into tonight's material. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we began by talking about my journey with Scripture, how my view of what the Bible is, what the Bible does, how God uses the Bible how that has changed or progressed over time uh, to the place where I am today. And then last week, we talked specifically about the sexual ethic or sexual morality of the Bible. Uh, And we talked about it being very cultural. We talked about it being in some ways very strange. And we talked about perhaps some things that the writers of the Bible, the writers of different books of the Bible were doing in an attempt to uh, flesh out what does it mean to follow God or to follow Jesus in our place where we are with our understanding of sex and people and marriage and all these things. And we kind of walked through that uh, last week. And so this week, we are going to make what I call a third turn. I've been talking about these things in in terms of turns. Um, So for me, on this topic, the first turn was really my view of the Bible. And that happened over probably a 25, 30-year period. The second turn was what we talked about last week, that man, what the Bible is saying about sex and sexual morality is not what I thought it said. It's, it's, it's different. It's, it's strange. It's, and so we talked about that. And that was my second turn on this topic. Tonight, we're going to talk about the third turn. But I promised last week that we would begin with the one verse that really speaks to our subject matter that we had not talked about before. And that is in Romans 1. And we're going to begin there tonight because I think this verse really helps us move into the topic I want us to cover tonight. So I'm going to read from Romans 1 and I'm going to begin in verse 18. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. This is after Paul has already kind of set the tone for the book. One of the most famous lines just before this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul is setting up what he's going to do later in the book as he talks a lot about what does it mean to be people who are captured by the gospel, who are filled with grace. How does that look in our relationships? How does that look among Jews and Gentiles? He's going to cover all these things. 
But after he lays that out, verse 18, he says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Now, this is where he begins to make the, uh, make, Paul begins to make a turn and begin to make an argument. But we're going to stop there because these are the verses that tend to be used when we talk about this topic. And there's a couple of things that if I was discussing primarily Romans 1, we would talk about. One is that who they are is very difficult to determine. Who is Paul talking about? Who are the... It's kind of like when people say, uh, well, uh, you know, people say that... Da, 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 and you say, what people? Well, you know, them. Who? He doesn't define who the they are. Um, there's a lot of debate about who the they are. There's some belief that he's just talking about kind of everybody in general. Anybody who's not a Christian, there seems to be some evidence that perhaps what he's talking about, he's writing to the church in Rome, that the they are the upper kind of imperial people in their court who participate in all these horrible things and oppress people and are murderers and slanderers and do all these things and have set themselves up as gods over the people. Uh, there's different ideas about that. 
And if I was going to talk about these verses for a long period of time, I would point out that the point of this isn't all the stuff Paul lists. It is what he says right there at the very end, that he then turns his finger on the people reading this and says, but you have no excuse when you judge people. Now, he just sounds like he just laid out a bunch of judgment. But then he points his finger at them and says, wait, you, you should know better. You shouldn't go around judging people. You're no different. And there's a lot that that kind of carries on throughout the book of Romans. But what I want us to focus on is a couple of things that Paul says that I think are fascinating for what we are talking about. And I'm going to read you, I'm going to go back and read you a couple of different things. One is from verses 19 through 20. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul is making an argument here that whoever that they are should know better. But not because they've been reading, at this point the only thing that exists would have been the Old Testament, because they've been reading the Old Testament, or because they've become Jews, or because they've been going to the synagogue, or worshiping at the Jewish temple. They should know better because God is evident to everyone. Just look around. That's his argument. Just look around. He's evident. Then, let's go down to verse 26. Even their women exchanged natural sex relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations when we're aflame with lust for one another. Again, Paul is making an argument, as he does above, from nature. On the, at the beginning, he's saying what God is doing or that God is here and what God wants is pretty evident whether you know Scripture or not. The good things to do are evident whether you know Scripture or not. And then here he makes another argument from the world at large when he says there's a natural way things work and what these people are doing is unnatural. So you... You can look at the world and you can see God. You can know the right thing to do. And there is a kind of a natural way that things are meant to work. And we can look at the world and observe that. And these people are doing things that are unnatural. Which means, very interestingly, that Paul does something that I don't know if you've ever thought about before. But Paul's argument here is not from Scripture. Paul often argues from Scripture. He usually uses the Old Testament. He has some favorite even books in the Old Testament. He likes to make arguments from. That's not what he's doing here. He is making an argument from, look out the window. Look at the world. Don't you see it? And so, throughout Christian history, there have been people who have been willing to say, wait a minute, sometimes maybe what we need to do is take Paul at his word and look out the window. Look at the world and say, what do we see? How does the world work? What is evident? Now, there's different ways to do that, to think about looking out. One is just using your eyes and kind of running around, just observing life, and we all do that to some degree. 
But there's a more rigorous way we talk about looking at the world. In modern times, we call that science. Right? Science is a, I want to really observe what's happening. I want to study it. I want to know it. I want to figure out what's happening there. I want to experiment with it. And so tonight, we're going to spend some time talking about science and observation. And what that might help us bring to this topic. So let's talk a little bit about science and observation. Now, as we begin, I want to tell you this. There is a lot, a lot of science here that I could get into that we are not going to because of two reasons. One, it's just way too much. And two, I would butcher it. I am not a scientist. But there are some things that can be gleaned from science and I encourage all of us to go check it out. I'm not demanding that you take my word for it. But I'm going to summarize some things from the world of science and medicine and psychology as we talk about this topic. And the first one is this. There is no single piece of science that says, Aha! That's it. There it is. That is why people are gay or lesbian. There is no like, oh, we have figured out this one little part of this chromosome and it, that's, there's the gay gene. That's what, we don't have that. We, I'm not saying we won't someday. Who knows? Uh, 50 years ago, if you just said the word genes, people would assume you're talking about these. So who knows? I don't. But we do not have that. I cannot point to a single genetic trait and say that's the one. However, I also cannot point to a single gene that makes us heterosexually attracted. There is no, aha, that's the gene that makes people want to fall in love with the opposite sex. We also haven't figured that out There's probably a reason for that, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I don't want to be foolish. I don't want us to say, hey, science has just kind of nailed this one. It's done. No, we don't know. However, number two, the overwhelming evidence is that sexual attraction is not something that can be changed by adult humans. It is a part of who people are. It is at their core. Across the board, whether it is scientific, medical, or psychological associations agree that sexual attraction and and identity are not something we choose. It is probably a combination of genetics. We have found some genetic differences. It is a combination of genetics, hormones, biology, and social and cultural factors. All of these combining to make us who we are, including who we are attracted to. Um, Along those lines, number three, 
Exodus International, after more than three decades of being the leader in gay conversion therapy, uh, just a few years ago, shut down and apologized. And their president came out with a statement that basically said, we've been doing this for like 35 years and it doesn't work. We're not changing people's attraction. We're not changing who they are attracted to. That's been our goal. We haven't done that. There is no evidence that gay conversion therapy can change someone's attraction. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do things with people that change them. For instance, we might convince someone to be single or to avoid all sexual contact. Gays and lesbians in our culture have been convinced to get married to someone of the opposite sex. Some have had children. None of this has been found to change their attraction. All of our scientific, medical, and psychological evidence seems to point to this. At the time when we find ourselves being attracted to other people, if we do, by the way, there seems to be a small portion of people who just aren't sexually attracted to anyone. But as we do, as we become aware of our attraction, that attraction is set. It's a part of who we are. Now, Paul obviously encouraged us to look at things. Now, I, I, I could list for you, and I'm not going to, uh, thousands of studies that are, if, if you want to do a study right now, boy, everybody's doing studies on this. So there are lots of studies. I'm not going to list them all. But science is one way of doing things and thinking about it in a scientific way. And what do science and medicine and uh, uh, psychology have to say to us? But I also want us to think about it in a slightly different way. Because I want us to come at it from different angles. One is to observe the world. To look at nature. The assumption of many throughout history has been that same-sex attraction is unnatural. There's the natural way the world works, right? We The terms we typically use are female and male. So... Female humans get with male humans, and female cows give. Well, I guess they're all cows. Female cows are cows. I'm sorry, I'm not good with biology. But female cows get with bulls, right? Males and females, and this is the way the world the world works. But what we now know through scientific observation and study is that in the animal kingdom, many animals participate in homosexual sexual activity, same sex sexual activity. In fact, there are some animals where the animals, I'm going to use a word here that's not the word, I'm going to say the word choose, they're not choosing. They are attracted to the same sex and that is exclusive. For instance, among sheep, it appears that around 8 to 10% of rams have an exclusive homosexual orientation. 
Not here to explain that, just that's what it is. And it appears that around 18% to 22% of rams are bisexual. In other words, they have sex with male rams and they have sex with female, the sheep. That's what they do. I could go into lots of other things. If you want to read some interesting stuff, read about giraffes. Uh, uh, but I'm not going to get into that. But there's all of these things that there's all sorts, and the, the, the listening is long, of animals that participate in same-sex sexual activity and some that that is what they do exclusively. Uh, the oldest tortoise in the world uh, has been mating with, uh, I think his name is Jonathan. I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm going to turn my head here. I don't think it's really Jonathan. I, I'm just trying to remember. It's an old tortoise, but I think maybe his name is, it's a human name. It's like Jonathan or Franklin or, not Franklin. That would make too much sense. That's what it should be. But it's like a, it's, it's, it's like a typical name. Anyway, has been, has been uh, mating with Frederica for like 20 something years. They recently discovered that Frederica is Fred. It's not a female. Um, and so, uh, these kind of things are happening. Now, I don't say this to, to make light of either sheep or animals or to make light of gays or lesbians in our culture. What I'm saying is that if we're going to observe, observe the natural world, then we have to admit what is going on in the natural world. Which brings me to my next topic. If you have uh, any clue, and most people don't, but that's okay, uh, uh, we use this phrase now in, in our culture a lot. Uh, we start with LGBT, and now we've added Q, and then I, and then A. LGBTQIA, I, get, I can't even say it coming off my tongue. But the I in that stands for intersex. Intersex is not about sexual attraction. It is about a way that people are made, their biology. Intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. Now, this is different than transgender. Okay, Transgender are people who really feel in the core of their being that although they are Male, biologically, they are female, or although they are female, biologically, they are male. That's not what this is. These are people who do not fit the typical categories that we have had throughout history for males and females. For example, a person might be born appearing to be female on the outside, but having mostly male typical anatomy on the inside. Um... And so the question becomes, what makes you male? What makes you female? When a baby is born, I've been there a few times, the doctor says, it's a boy or it's a girl based on a brief appearance of one particular piece of anatomy, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. And we have discovered that while that's often true, it's not always true. And what does that mean? Um, let me give you one example. 
Uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome is a condition. Uh, it's probably inherited. It affects approximately 1 in 20,000 people. Uh, and the body cells of these people are unable to respond to androgen which is a hormone that appears in both females and males, but there is more in a male. An individual who has this syndrome can have testes developed during gestation while they're in the womb. The fetal testes produce inhibiting hormones and then testosterone and... As in other typical male fetuses, uh, these uh, inhibitors cause uh, the malarian ducts to regress, so the fetus lacks a uterus or fallopian tubes, a cervix. But because these uh, cells fail to respond to testosterone, the genitals differentiate in a female rather than male pattern. And things like seminal vesicles and vas deferens are then absent. So, a newborn with this syndrome has genitals of a normal female appearance and also undescended or partially descended testes and usually a short vagina with no cervix. And so, here's the question. Is this a male or a female? And in our typical binary you've got to be one or the other, these things become difficult. How do you decide? Is it the level of testosterone in the body? Is that what proves whether someone is a man or a woman? Is it if you have an XY chromosome or an XX, right? That's what, I mean, I don't know if you took like eighth grade biology, right? That's what I was told. So XXs are who? And XYs are? Dudes, Right? But yet we happen to know that there is a, especially among females, there are females who have XXY. Um, we also happen to know that there are some people who have mosaic, which means in some of their cells they have XX and in others of their cells they have XY. It depends on which cell you're cutting into. What makes you male or female? Is it simply having certain genitalia? Is it being able to produce an egg or a sperm? What makes you male or female? And so you start reading about this, hearing about this, studying these kind of things, and you begin to realize that the idea that the natural world, just as, as it is, whether out there, whether it's animals, whether it's human beings, doesn't fit so neatly into the categories we have typically had. By the way, people have known about this for a long time. St. Augustine, who lived in the 3rd and 4th century, actually in one of his books, writes about people who are intersex. Now, that's not what he calls them. Um, I believe the word he uses is androgynes. From, you know, like we get the word androgyny. And what's interesting is they have people who obviously they figured out like this person seems to have some female characteristics of our time and some male characteristics, probably genitalia. What do we do? Interestingly, uh, Augustine in an act where he feels he's being very merciful basically says, 
we should give them the privileges of being a man. Because in their culture, it was much more privileged to be a man. And so, since this person's we're not sure, let's err on the side of mercy and let them be a man. So, you take into account what we know from science, what we see in nature, and what we are learning about how human beings are put together. And it begins to create a place of what is going on. What is natural? What fits the world? What does it mean to say that someone is male or female? Just recently, I was reading about uh, the last winner of the 800 meters in the Olympics. She's a woman from South Africa. Um, She's probably intersex. She has extremely high levels of testosterone for a woman. Which makes her able to run faster. But is she a man because she has high testosterone? Is she a woman because she has a female genitalia? What? How do we decide? And they're actually, this is becoming like a rules thing now. Because we're beginning to discover that the world is not as easily divided into parts as we used to think. And that's happened because we've taken people like Paul seriously and said, we should observe the world. We should do science. We should look and see what's actually happening here. Now, I want to talk about one more piece of observing the world. But this has nothing to do with uh, animals or genitalia or anything like that. All of this talk, even some of the stuff about intersex, uh, the stuff about uh, sheep, all of that I've chosen for a specific reason tonight because it might make you feel weird. And how it makes us feel, I think, matters. Many of us may feel a revulsion when we talk about these kinds of things. But there's actually science about that. Here's something we are learning. That when it comes to making what we consider to be moral decisions or moral distinctions about the world, our physiological response and our emotional state matter. Things like disgust, that feeling of disgust matters. It affects us, and it affects our moral decision-making. There's some great works on disgust. As a matter of fact, local professor, Dr. Richard Beck, wrote a great book on disgust. Highly recommend it. You want to read some really disgusting stuff, but it's in there. But it's about how how we have this disgust with things and how that affects us. Well, as we think about these kind of topics, and we think about gays or lesbians having sex, as we think about animals, as we think about intersex people, we can have an emotive, physiological response to talking about such things. And what we know about humans, psychologically, is this. Humans tend to make decisions based on that feeling rather than reason. 
In fact, um, it appears that reason, um, our, our reasons why we say, oh, this is why this is right or wrong, often are given or are things that we say to justify how we already feel about it. So here's, I feel like this is wrong, so I'm going to tell you reasons why I must feel that way. But I just have an innate sense that it is. Uh, there's a wonderful book, highly, highly recommend it, especially before the next election. Uh, it's called The Righteous Mind. Uh, it's by Jonathan Haidt, and it's Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he's doing moral psychology. Why do we think things are right and wrong that we think? Why in certain cultures do other people have different ideas about what's right and wrong? How does that come about in us? And what he talks about is that our emotions and our intuition and all these things are like a giant elephant. And our reason is the writer. Now, if you look at someone riding an elephant and the person pulls on its ear to the right and the elephant goes right, you assume that the person is leading the elephant. But in reality, we know this. The elephant, if it wants to go left, the person can't stop them. The elephant goes wherever it wants. The rider's along for the ride. Well, our emotions, our intuition, all these things are the elephant. And our reason is along, but in many ways along for the ride. Now, that might sound scary. I'm telling you, this is a great thing. This is a wonderful thing. We want to have emotions and intuition and that sort of thing as we make decisions. Babies who have no ability to reason, but even at a fairly young age, can begin showing moral decision-making. Whether that's about sharing or not hurting something or someone, they begin to do that. However, true psychopaths do not have those emotions and intuitions. They have reason, and they tend to be horrible people. Those emotions and intuitions are good. However, we have to think about where they come from, why we have them. So, my emotions and uh, my intuitions and all those things are probably a product of my genetics, but also a product of the culture in which I live, the home in which I was raised. So, for instance, for me, the word freedom is a great word, right? For most Americans, freedom is a great word. It means a wonderful thing. Like, that's like at the top of the list. I, would, I mean, someone says freedom, and I just all, I immediately have like a pretty good feeling. Like, freedom is great. But there are other cultures where freedom is not such a great word because it has to do with pushing aside family and culture and things that are good. People who are really free don't care about others. That's not as, and so that's an enculturated feeling that's been created there. So, why do I bring this up? Because there is within many of us a feeling when we hear about same sex attraction, when we hear the word gay when we hear the word lesbian, when we hear someone talking about transgender people, when we hear somebody talk about queer people, however we hear the word, there is a feeling within us. And that feeling in many ways affects the decision we end up making. And if my interior feeling is, oh, that's just unnatural and weird, well, then it must be wrong. 
Because natural is right and unnatural is wrong. But let's talk about one more set of observations. Because in all the information about our intuition, our feelings, and how those control how we make decisions, one of the things that's been discovered is this. Getting a lot more information often doesn't change how we feel on a subject. It's good to read a book. Uh, It's good to hear uh, some professor or some scientist or some doctor talk about a thing. But for most of us, that doesn't change where we are. What is most likely to change is personal interactions with others. And so I want to kind of close this talk for tonight by talking about a few of my own personal observations. These are from me. All the things I've talked about to this point, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Bible and sex, or whether it's about some of these scientific things we've talked about tonight, all those things matter and have affected me, but ultimately, these are personal things. And so let me tell you about four personal things. Number one, actual conversations with people who are gay or lesbian. And I don't mean conversations with people who are gay or lesbian where I talk about how much we both love the Texas Rangers. Although, that's really good. Because you should. It's an abomination to not. Um, But what I mean is this. uh, To hear their story. Follow their journey. To not just view them as, oh, you're a person who has this thing. But rather... You're a human being like me who has a journey, and my journey is difficult and ups and downs and sometimes unexplainable, and so is yours. But how can I truly, truly say something about someone who is same-sex attracted if I haven't had conversations with people who are same-sex attracted about being same-sex attracted? If someone wanted to condemn me for being attracted to women, I would certainly want them to talk with me first before they did that. And so my personal observation has been that the more I have talked with people who are gay or lesbian or transgender or queer or intersex or whatever we want to say about different people and where they are, the more I've had those conversations, the less I feel that disgust, the less I feel that trepidation, and the more I'm actually able to think through what I'm doing or feeling. The second observation is this. I spent a lot of time trying to determine, and I don't mean this as a joke. I mean this. I spent some time trying to determine, thinking back on my story about when I chose to be a heterosexual. I don't remember ever, well, I remember not liking girls, right? I certainly remember not liking some specific girls. (laughs) But... I don't remember a day 
say in seventh grade or something, as I was going, beginning to go through puberty, where I said, you know what? I think it's going to be girls for me. I think I'm going to be attracted to women. That's what I'm choosing. I didn't. It just was always there. It was always a part of me. In a way that I can't explain any more than I can explain to you why the thoughts in my head are the thoughts in my head. Or why I can explain why I love apricot nectar cake but don't want to eat an apricot. It's just me. Number three. I began to look at people. Gays or lesbians. And thinking about historically, the willingness throughout millennia for people to choose a path that is filled with hurt, death, cultural shame, family ostracization, and suicide. That if being attracted to people of the same sex is really a choice, then people, knowing all those things, in many cultures, that this will be my death. I can't imagine still choosing it. It just seems strange to me. And it began pushing me towards the idea of, well, then perhaps they're not choosing this. And then number four. I want you to imagine, because this is a thing I've done for myself, how we feel. The, perhaps the complete inability, I'll just be honest, the complete inability to grasp how anyone could be attracted. This is for me, I'm talking about for me. The complete inability to grasp how anyone could be attracted to another man. I do not get it. I'll be honest. But is it possible that that feeling I have, that that just seems ludicrous and impossible, is the exact way a gay man feels, but in reverse? That nothing within them could possibly imagine being attracted truly to a woman. There is nothing, I am telling you, there is nothing. I am completely convinced of this. I have very few, very few things I know for sure in life. Here's one I know. I will never be married to a guy. <laughs> if something horrible happened to Melody and I got remarried, I promise you it will be a woman. Because that's who I am. But if that is an immutable part of me, I couldn't choose against it if I tried. Now, I want to uh, kind of wrap this up tonight by reading a different verse from Paul. This is in Corinthians. And I want you to read it because this is Paul talking, but it's on a very different subject. The Corinthians are having trouble in worship in all sorts of ways. And here is what Paul's going to say as he talks about women prophesying in worship. This is what he says. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper 
for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. I want you to hear what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that it's obvious that women are supposed to have long hair and men are supposed to have short. It's obvious. Nature shows it to you. Don't you agree? But interesting, he says this at the very beginning. And this isn't something we usually say. He says, judge for yourselves. In other words, this isn't simply, yes, women have to have long hair and men have short hair. For Paul, it seems pretty evident. Like, that's how it is. Women should have long hair, men have short. It seems pretty obvious. To me, I've seen it. It seems natural. It seems like this is how nature should be. But judge for yourselves. What do you think? Now, I think his assumption is they're going to come to the same conclusion. For cultural reasons. And so... I ask the same question tonight. What does the nature of things tell us? What does it tell us? If we just look and go, this is natural, what does that mean? What does it tell us? Do I look only into myself and truly know how other people work? Do I consider all the possible information I can get? And so, after these three weeks, we are about to reach the critical fourth turn. And that is this. If we have questions, if we're unsure, if we are making judgments for ourselves like Paul talks about, if nature is teaching us things, if we have a slightly different view of the Bible than maybe others have had, whatever it is, if there's any wiggle room here, then the question becomes, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of all of this? How are we faithful followers knowing what we know? And so next week, I'm going to share what I believe are some possible options for the people of God as we consider all of this. Now, I conclude tonight by telling you this. The stuff I talked about tonight is weird for some of you. It's strange. It's new. It's difficult. You may be wondering where some of this even came from. And that is okay. That's okay. All I'm trying to point out tonight is that if we look out the window, we should be honest about what we see. Paul looked around and really thought, I really believe probably this, it's pretty obvious. Women should have long hair and men have short. It's just fairly obvious. And you know what? And throughout cultures and history, that's often been true. That if you looked around, that would be pretty obvious. Have you met some men from northern India? Their hair is much longer than their wives. I think there, the exact opposite would be obvious. Isn't it obvious that men are to have long hair? Isn't that just, why would anybody think differently? And so, all I'm asking you to do this week is to consider, when we look out the window, what do we see? 
does it fit with what we already think and feel? Does it cause us to question? And if so, are we willing to consider that perhaps Jesus is faithful to us no matter what length of hair we think people ought to have?